0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, I do love it when I have people come back on the podcast that I have gotten to talk to before. And, um, and this is somebody who is very special to me because we are working together on a project that she just really took off with. And this is, uh, once again, Kim Buck. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. And let me read a little bit about Kim Bucks so you can be reminded who Kim is. To give a little background, Kim has over 15 years of clinical experience in mental health. Her therapeutic approach is integrative and holistic with a mixture of many different methods that she tailors to each client's individual needs. Um, She is a clinical director of a treatment program in Arizona, a certified sex addiction therapist, an approved supervisor for the Arizona Board of Behavioral Health Examiners. And Family Strategies Counseling Center is where Kim works in Arizona. She's the clinical director and supervisor for interns and associate level counselors seeking training and licensure. She's also on her way to her PhD. Let's hear it for you, Kim. Yay.
1: Woo. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I know you're not going to cheer very much until all that work is over. This is true. But it's still exciting to be, and I'll say this for me too, before we get started, an older person who's kind of saying, okay, I've always wanted to do this. I'm just going to go ahead and do this.
1: Definitely. It's a challenge for sure. But I have thoroughly, I'm I'm enjoying what I'm learning and my research is focused around this topic we're going to discuss today. So I feel good about it.
0: I do want to put out a word for those of uh, folks who are listening who have been thinking, you know, I always wanted to go back to school. And then you think, why would I ever want to go back to school? And Here's what I want to tell you. You know, if you ever wanted to get your bachelor's, if you ever wanted to finish high school, if you ever wanted to get your master's or go on for, you know, postgraduate kinds of education, uh, go for it. And the reason I say that is it's just, and Kim will back this up, having been through two graduate school experiences, they both are the same in a certain way. And Kim, I want to know if this is yours, which is when you start, it's like you want to learn every little thing and you want to do everything right and you want to figure everything out and somewhere about six months in it's like I just want to finish school. (laughs) And what do I need to get done?
1: Definitely. (laughs) Definitely can relate to that.
0: I remember when I applied to graduate school, I was told this, Kim, I was told it's kind of like entering a tunnel, a long tunnel where the light is shining at you and you don't know if it's a train coming at you or if it's the exit. (laughs) But if you just keep moving ahead, you will find that eventually you will get to the end, you'll find that light and it is an exit and they'll give you your degree. And then it's kind of like having renovated your bathroom. It doesn't seem as bad in retrospect as it was going through it.
1: Right. I'm banking on that. <laughs> okay, and
0: guys, please forgive us for chatting. Um, you know, I, I um, Kim, and I had similar educational experiences, and I, I know that she's just a little, but a year behind me in getting her PhD. And I know how hard the work is. And she's also dedicated herself, and this is the reason for this conversation today: to prodependence and having a different view on families and partners who love those of us who are addicted or those of us who are mentally ill or those of us who struggle. And Kim has been, as if you've been listening to the podcast, has really been one of the primary folks that I've been working with who embrace pro-dependence to the point where... She is working on a workbook, um, which we hope to have out early next year. She is working on uh, all of her groups and activities in her treatment center are now focused on pro-dependence. And so one of the reasons I wanted to bring Kim back is because she's really using a very different model than we've had before for working with someone who is married to an addict. And I just want to ask, like, what are you finding? What are you seeing? And if you can say, Kim, you know, what, not so much about the therapy part, because, you know, our clients, uh, people who are listening to this podcast maybe aren't therapists and they don't really care that much about what happened, how, how it is more useful for us as therapists to work in an attachment model like this. But how does it break down for the average person who's just, let's say, got a husband who's going to AA or a wife who's going to SAA or, 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 you know, has just figured out they have an addiction? How does pro-dependence apply or how is that useful for them even if they don't get to someone like you?
1: Wow, I think pro dependence is so great because when people are facing this kind of crisis in their life, when they are dealing with addicted loved ones or people who are struggling that they really care about, they are looking for answers. They're looking for peace. They're looking for hope. They're looking for, you know help in a lot of different ways. Certainly in therapy, you know, from a good therapist, a trained therapist, you can help them, but also just from people around them, from other family members, from their support system, from their faith base, where, wherever they can find support. And prodependence is is such a great perspective for these individuals because it automatically supports them in their desire to save their family, to save their relationship, to to try and be helpful in those relationships um, in a healthy way while still maintaining their, their sense of self and their ability to take care
0: So, So Kim, you're saying, and I think I got this right, that in the most basic way when looking at co- using codependency as a model, when you come in as a family member or a spouse, the therapist or even your sponsor or your friend, they're looking for what's wrong with you for having loved and the way you loved the addicted person. And pro-dependence says, good for you for the love that you gave. Amazing that you hung in there with that troubled person. And let's help you make the whole situation better by your having help and not having to do it by yourself. What is the difference there for the person who's looking at themselves and saying, oh, you know, my wife just went to treatment. My husband just started meetings and I think he's working on this. How do I look at it for myself? What are we asking them or what are you asking partners to look at in this model? Or what do you think it would be helpful for a spouse to look at?
1: Well, I think there's several things. Backing it up just a little bit, I think we've, unfortunately, the codependent model that's been around for so long has kind of created this culture or sort of created this culture where we want to kind of look at the partner or the, the spouse or the family member and think, what are you doing wrong?
0: Well, well, isn't it? Isn't doesn't codependency kind of say they've done something wrong simply by loving an addict right. or loving a troubled person? There's automatically something wrong with you. And I've had people told, by the way, oh, and if you you can divorce this person, but you'll end up marrying the exact same person next time because you're so screwed up. And I think of those people who are just so thrilled that their partners gotten in, gotten into recovery so excited that you know their f- person's finally looking at themselves or or even if the person isn't looking at themselves so eager to try to grow and learn for themselves how to love this addicted person and judgment is not what they seek
1: and i don't and i don't think maybe people mean to do that i think it's just culturally sort of evolved that way why would you be in that relationship in the first place why would you Mm. You know, that kind of
0: You should have known better. You
1: should have known better. Or maybe, you know, well, this makes sense because of your history, your personal history. You know, maybe you grew up in a home that was similar or had similar issues, you know, and that may or may not bear some impact on those decisions.
0: But who cares?
1: But who cares? Right.
0: Because I've been loving this person and I've been trying to save our lives and they're falling apart. And how can you look at me as the problem? So let me ask you this, then, you know, if if under codependency and and lots of people did this, you know, they started going to groups to look at themselves, to reduce their caretaking, to eliminate their rescuing, to not enable, you know, all those things that we actually just see as loving. What does someone want to if I'm the spouse of an addict or a mentally ill person and I am trying to heal myself? I'm not pro-dependent because that's not a label, right? So how do I use this model to help my life and improve my life if I don't want to look at what's wrong with me, but I want to look at what's right with me?
1: Well, gosh, I think you just said it. I think we have to start looking at strengths. We have to start looking at the strengths um, that you you have indi- individually, and also the strengths that are in the relationship. Not barring, you know, understanding there's difficulties and crisis and pain and betrayal and those kind of things. But we want to start coming at it from a strength-based attachment perspective, where we're looking at what's gone right in this relationship and what about it do you want to save and what it, what is it that benefits and blesses your life so to speak and, and why so i think that approach it sounds like a small tweak but i think it's a very it's actually a very big one because automatically when when we could look at it that way i, d- I just don't think i don't think partners and families feel as defensive
0: Well, look at it this way. I mean, I guess, Kim, and like, you know, if I loved you and I cared about you and we had a family together and you started to fail because of addiction and I continue to love you and try to support you. And, and, you know, I don't know how to help you stop drinking, but I'm just going to try to make everything better as much as I can. I think the hardest part is to walk into a 12 step meeting or read a book or get to a place to work on yourself. You've finally gotten away from that very challenging addict. And someone doesn't say, good job. You've really hung in there. Wow, you're amazing. Someone says, let's look at what's wrong with you.
1: Really, you just want to know that what you've been feeling is I, I'm a normal human being who loves somebody who cares. And I've been, I've been trying to yeah, save, to, to stick it out, to be there, to, to make sense out of and to stay connected to somebody who's important to me.
0: Kim, I, I want to tell you a story about a little sort of pro story from when I was in Chicago teaching it not that long ago. And, uh, you know, I teach, we teach now about, you know, when you love someone, when they're struggling, you will do anything to find out how to help them. That's what you do when you love someone and they're struggling and there's no pathology in it. That's health. And, uh, you know, when th- addiction therapists hear this, it really doesn't sit right with them. They, there's got to be something wrong with this spouse. You know? We've got to get it in there and make something wrong with them. And so um, I had this guy come up to me after the talk and he was a young social worker. He was like 35, 40 years old. And he said to me, I think for the first time, I understand what you're talking about. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, my dad has cancer. And I said, I'm really sorry. And he said, you see this book bag on my back? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you see how full it is? And I said, yeah, you got a pretty big load of books there. What are you back in school? And he said, no, my dad has cancer. And he said, ever since I found out my dad had cancer, I have bought every single book I can find on cancer. I'm going to every online support group. I'm looking everywhere. And I realized when hearing the talk about prodependence that this is what partners of alcoholics do. This is what sex addict partners do. This is what the family members of addicts do. They just are trying to educate themselves in any way possible to try to deal with the crisis of this person who is failing. And he said, you know, I so clearly see it. Here I am with this book bag. I was never particularly interested in cancer before. It's all I can think about because I love my dad and I want to help him survive and I want to help our family. And I thought, yeah, man, you do get this. That is why that book bag is full, not because there's something wrong with you or you want to play doctor and fix your dad, but because you love him. And when you love someone, you just try to figure out what you can do to make their life better.
1: That is such a great story. And it's really? it's right. And it so points out what, what we're talking about here is why would we see that as a problem whether it's cancer it's addiction it's mental health why would we see somebody's desire to learn and and love and try and sort through that why would that why would we see that as something that needs a diagnosis or a pathology
0: well as you know there's a history of blaming caregivers in our addiction culture and I, I think I've mentioned this before that there's a guy named William white who William White and William White really researched the addiction field for the last, you know, l- looked at it from the 1930s onward. onward, And he said somewhere around the 1940s, someone said the prototypic thing about the spouse of an alcoholic, which this is what, uh, 40 years before codependency was developed, but the message is the same. I would drink too if I was married to a woman like that. And he says, you know, alcoholic spouses were seen as nagging and masochistic and controlling and difficult. And we're talking about, you know, 30, 40 years before there was a disease model or, you know, 15, 20 years before there was a disease model. Certainly 40 years before we had any label for partners and spouses. But even then we were looking at people who are caregiving to someone who is troubled as troubled themselves. And we didn't look at how they get troubled, which is trying to love the person who is troubled. And then, you know, why are they so crazy? Even then, there is this sort of, and Kim, why don't you talk about this? I'd really appreciate it. This kind of coming in the door thing, which means I've been tortured by my spouse's sexual, romantic, gambling, alcohol behavior. They have ruined our life. You know, this person has been acting out, drinking, using all of it. And I'm coming to see you to, to help me help them. And you're talking to me about me. Just the fact that you're talking to me about me at all is pretty overwhelming.
1: So I think it's about the content of what we're talking about with them. Talking about their history, their past, their life experiences that somehow may have impacted their current situation, not only irrelevant at that time, but hurtful because it's taking the partner or family member completely out of what they're there for they're there maybe talking to their family or a friend or their therapist or whatever to just get support. So we talk about them, but we talk about them in terms of, wow, this must be so painful. And I can see all the efforts you have made to try and you know help the situation. I'm wondering if there's ways we can do that that would also better benefit you, that would help you along. So we start talking about their own self-care and, you know, how do I manage the stress of the relationship and still take good care of myself?
0: So what you're saying is pro-dependence is very practical. We're not asking people to examine their past, do a lifeline, a timeline, look at the ways they are abused in their history. They're, they're dealing with enough stuff just being involved with that troubled person. We're not asking them to look at themselves. We're asking them, how can we make your life easier?
1: That's right. They seem to like that. They do. And, and that makes sense. Most people in this situation, individuals are experiencing some pretty heavy trauma. They're experiencing trauma responses. They're not sleeping well. They're not eating well. Well,
0: if you're looking at the love of my life and the, the person who's trying to share my family with me fall apart, yeah, I'm not going to no, matter whether it's drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, I'm not going to be doing very well as a partner.
1: Right. And so what happens, I think, you know, most often in these situations is it's not that the partner or the family member trying to be helpful is sick or has a problem of their own. Sometimes they lose some of, they've been working so hard trying to figure out how to solve this problem that they let go sometimes of their own care. So, you know, a good friend, um, people who can support this individual, Could be just that. How can I help you? How can I be there for you? How can
0: you know, Kim? I love this because listen. If if you had cancer and you were my partner, I would be home every night, making sure you were eating, taking your medication, you were in bed on time, you were okay with the chemo. But if I'm at home every night waiting for you to come home because you're alcoholic and worried about your drinking and your how are you, what kind of condition are you come back in, and what are you going to need from me, and you know, are you going to be sick when you get home? And there's something wrong with that.
1: Right. Exactly. And so. The support system for a family member or a partner, really needs to just be that you know, caring for them, help help them along. You know, be a friend, go have fun, um, remind them to you know eat something, to get good sleep. You know, basic.
0: Hey there! I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. you really made my point, Kim, because, you know, if I come home to you every single night to make sure you're okay because you're on chemo and I want you to be eating and safe and no one would say anything, but I'm a miracle worker and they would probably, if they wanted to help me, maybe take my place so that I could go to get a massage one night or go out with friends or take care of myself and not just be taking care of this troubled person. So if you're saying in the same sense that the reason I'm sitting at home every night waiting for my alcoholic partner to come home is I'm worried that I don't want them coming home drunk to the kids. I don't want them this or that. And so for I have given up some of my life to watch over them, but maybe that that is not a bad thing. Maybe I just need some help. Maybe I just need someone to help me on Tuesdays and someone to help on Thursdays. And so someone else is home when my spouse comes home and the kids are there and I want to make sure that he or she isn't drunk. It's not me, but that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me for wanting to be there to help.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Well, and then there's natural, you know, and a, along with trauma comes all the emotional free fall, you know, that I might experience. It comes, I am going to need, I'm going to need people around me that won't judge me for my feelings, that won't judge me for my anger, that won't judge me for my fear, for my hurt, you know, for, cause those, those are natural emotions that are going to happen. What
0: do you mean judge me? Well, how would someone judge you for your fear and your hurt?
1: I think that's, a, a lo- again, along with the codependent model, there's a little bit of, you know, I have to work that out. I have to figure out why I feel this way and where it comes from. When What I really need is just a space to feel. I'm experiencing loss in real time.
0: So part of what we're saying, Kim, in a big way is don't question your love for someone. Love is love is love. And even if you love the troubled person, even if you love the, the confused person, even if you, you, the way you love, and we hear this a lot, and maybe we could talk about this, Kim. I hear this a lot from spouses. Loving this person over the last year or two, when they were most active in their addiction, has turned me into someone I don't want to be. I hear spouses say, now I nag, now I complain, now I've gained weight, now I'm, you know, I'm doing all this stuff I'm controlling. And I've become this person that I don't really like. Have you ever heard that? Constantly, yes. Can you, so, and and tell me, how does someone end up being someone they don't like? Like that? How does that happen?
1: I think it's a slow and steady process when you're in a relationship with somebody who's struggling, because you're putting yourself aside, your needs aside, frequently to take care of everybody. Crisis. <laughs> yeah, right. You're just managing the the storm that's raging the around lot. you. Right. That you just sometimes you just forget to do those things that keep a person steady that keeps somebody balanced like we were talking about earlier maybe i'm not getting the sleep i need to maybe i'm not exercising i'm not eating you know healthily i'm not going out ever so often and you know connecting with friends and people who matter to me and so wh- when that happens we're we're sometimes running in a deficit and that would be whether I'm caring for someone with cancer or addiction or anything. It's very easy for the caretaker to find themselves in a deficit themselves, and that can make the caregiver more vulnerable to all sorts of you know emotions or situations. Or I might be on edge. I might be so.
0: Part of the way I turn into someone I don't want to be is that I, uh, I exhaust myself trying to help the other person, and I'm not taking care of me. I'm thinking also some of it comes also from not being able to affect change.
1: Right. Because addiction, addiction's chronic and, you know, it needs a specific kind of help from specific kind of, you know, trained professionals and structure and, and that kind of thing. So a caretaker in all of their efforts can't, probably is not going to be able to affect a lot of change in an active ongoing addiction.
0: And then they're going to get frustrated.
1: Exactly. And oftentimes they'll blame themselves. I see yeah. that a lot. Like, well, I could fix this, why can't I fix this? You know, they may be very capable individuals in many areas of their life. And 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 sometimes that can then bring on mirroring sort of emotions like or experiences of shame or self-blame or doubt or or that kind of thing. So that's where, you know, we have to really pay attention to caretakers. They're not just feeling those things solely because of their own trauma or history. Or issues. They could be feeling that way just simply because of the situation they are currently in.
0: Mm, and what they, what that situation has left them where that's left them. I mean, you know, when I think about addiction and couples, I, I, I mean, the frog in the boiling water scenario always comes up for me, which is that if I live with an addict, you know, they're, when we're 25 or 30 and their casual behaviors just seem fun. Uh, and then they're still doing those same casual behaviors when we have two kids under the age of 10 and they're still going out and partying or whatever those fun things were. I may not recognize that the es- you know that what was a little bit fun a few years ago is now escalating into a problem. I didn't know that when we got married but now or we got connect- together but now it's here and how do I deal with it? Um, I want to remind everybody that addiction doesn't come up in a family. One day someone comes home and says, oh, honey, guess what? I'm an addict. (laughs) I just realized it. Let me tell you what I've been doing. It happens more like the frog in the boiling water that you're drinking a little too much. You're sex. You know, I feel like you're lying. I feel like you're distant. You're not being truthful. But I don't trust. I'm not sure to trust you or myself. The disclosure and the discovery of an addictive process in a family can take years before it actually, you know, and, and addicts can hide pretty well. So spouses are often left feeling like, what's, I don't know what's going on. I know they're distant. I know they're, they're blaming. I know they're shaming. I know they're critical. I know they're all, but I don't know why. And then they do blame themselves. Oh, and by the way, do addicts ever blame spouses? Do you think an addict might ever take the responsibility for their addiction and put it on a spouse?
1: I think that's very common.
0: And what would that sound like?
1: <laughs> it's not pretty. And it, it's very hurtful, you know, if you, if you would just not react the way you do, I would be more honest with you. If you would, uh, yeah, if you could handle your emotions better, then I would tell you the truth. If you.
0: I wouldn't drink and have sex with other women if you just lose weight or pay more attention to me or, but what's a guy to do? Right. And there are people who absolutely will will buy into that.
1: Right. And if you're already, you know, it's a little crazy making for the, for the partner who's left wondering, is that true? I mean, I have gained a little weight. You know, it's, it's difficult for them not to take that on, you know, and, and internalize that.
0: How do you help a spouse Come out of or a partner or a family member come out of this place of feeling that they are responsible. Because really we're by moving from codependence to pro-dependence, we're saying and without question that a spouse is never ever responsible for someone else's sexual acting out, gambling acting out, spending acting out, or drug and alcohol behavior. That a spouse can cause unhappy circumstances, but heck, the person can, you know, just leave. There are a lot of choices you can make other than drinking, sexing, gambling, whatever that is. So when that person chooses to be act addictively, that's on them. But how do you begin to help the spouses understand that they really aren't responsible? They're not accountable. It isn't their fault. And to be able to come from a more grace-based place around the addiction, especially if you can't get the person to stop using or drinking or sexing, or what do you do with a spouse who's living with an addict and that addict is not changing?
1: Well, I think from the pure pro-dependence model that I've been using and working with, um, after we are able to validate and support and provide hope and some structure for self-care with the partner or the family member members, then we start really focusing on their own set of boundaries, their own what's healthy for me and what's not, and helping them be able to delineate useful ways you know, to show up in the relationship, what's, what's really beneficial and what's not. And maybe the addict in my life wants more from me, but this is all I can give. Helping validate that in them and helping them know those lines for themselves, I think is really important.
0: I have to say, we got to work really hard with partners to, to move away from, if I do this, he or she will do that. Because it isn't like that, you know, and to give them a sense of, you know, you've done a great job. And even if you have nagged sometimes, even if you got angry sometimes, even if you're controlling, even if you're who wouldn't be in a situation like this. And maybe sure, it means you need to step back a little bit and get better perspective, but you haven't done anything wrong. What you've done is, you know, try to deal with this incredibly painful, frustrating situation that won't change no matter how hard you try. And that is what happens to partners after years and years of not exactly knowing what's going on, but feeling that something's not right.
1: And that can be a big pill to swallow. Um, if someone's been living with an active addict over years and years, there may be a sense of such loss about really embracing their lack of power and you know, uh, their ability to change or to fix or to heal because we don't do that. We love and we, you know, we, we try our best to love, but when we learn what's healthy and how to do that healthily within the relationship, if we choose to stay or to keep trying, that's, there's all, all sorts of loss and grief that happens in that too. I'll often tell partners and families, probably the most power you have in the relationship is a gentle invitation. And that's usually offered by example meaning I will take care of myself, set these healthy boundaries, and I really hope and pray that the addict in my life that I love and want to heal will see that and be invited into that space and want to come.
0: So what do you say to the model, which is all, again, part of codependency that says, you know, I have to detach from you, step away from you, uh, let you h- struggle with your own problem on your own, uh, let you crash and burn without, you know, I'm just slowing your failing down. And I realize that now, and I need to just let you fail. That's kind of the model that codependency paints for partners is to detach, to let, that sp- to let the love go as best they can and let that person suffer until it gets so bad that the person seeks help for themselves um, or doesn't.
1: I, I think that's empowering in an unsustainable way. Because we are made for attachment and connection, that long term will either create an anti-dependent thing in the person where I learn how to you know, reject attachment, which will have its, own, have its own problems down the road. So I think we have to figure out how to be okay. If I'm a partner or a family member, I don't think swing, swinging the pendulum in that way is, like I said, sustainable or healthy either. So we want, you know, if somebody's in a relationship with somebody and and trying to work on that, then we have to figure out what's savable. Why why do I want to be in this relationship and what's good about it? And can over time, if we're both working on it and we're all working on our, you know, healing, can I stick by this person and with boundaries, you know, taking care and protecting those parts of my life that I can't have injured any longer? Uh, you know, so there's a lot of considerations. Moderate response is is always so important because our our instinct would be to be like, yeah, you do it. I'll be over here. You go over there. It's this kind of false protection, but we're going to have to deal with that one way or another at some point or another.
0: You know, we haven't really talked much about this, but as we're getting ready to finish up, I think about the partner who's told, well, if you didn't marry this person or get involved, you just get involved with someone just like them. And why not stay in the relationship and work on it? And that, that is not the right reason to stay, <laughs> I don't think, on any, on any level. And I think it's, I've heard a lot of spouses say they feel that's really abusive thing to say to them. But I also want to acknowledge, do we have issues? Sure. Do partners have issues? You bet. Do spouses and partners run into their own trauma, their own histories, their own abuse? Do they act out in their own ways? Sure, we're human. But when and how a spouse might choose, if ever, to look at themselves really should not be dependent on the fact that they love someone who's troubled. Um, And this is a golden opportunity to look at their problems because now they're in a crisis and boy, we can really get in there and pick them apart that just isn't the right model. These folks are in a crisis. And even if they choose to look at themselves later, we don't have to call them codependent. We can say, oh, wow, when you know, when you were in the peak of that crisis, there's some things, some ways you acted that I think we both talked about were not typical for you and reminded you of some things when you were growing up. Why don't we talk about that sometime later?
1: Right, and some of the women and uh, partners and families that I've worked with, and particularly the spouses of addicts that I've worked with with this prodependence model, I find it's a natural kind of place that most of them have. Not all, because not all have the tra- you know a trauma background per se. But but I find it's a very natural process for them to want more understanding down the road. What do you mean more understanding? of themselves, of how did I kind of get here and what, what in my life may have contributed or may contribute to choices I make. I find that they down the road, some may want to do that and it might be really relevant and helpful. Well, and then the labeling,
0: I mean, that's, and I agree with you, you know, Kim, we are absolutely aligned. It's like, don't call somebody any bad name or diagnose them when they're in a crisis. Just be nice to them and support them. If issues come up that someone, hmm, this seems to be an issue for you. Wow. You've run into this before. We store that in our little mental therapy notes guide. And later on, if somebody wants to explore it when the crisis is over, we might be willing to explore that, but we're not going to label it and say, oh, well, you're codependent or you're this or that. We already have names for, wow, it seems like you've regressed a little bit under stress and some of those past issues have come up for you again. Well, that's something we can work on, but we don't have to label that. We don't have to call it bad names. It's just, we notice these things about you when you were in a crisis. And that's when noticeable things can show up about about any of us because we struggle uh, when we're in crisis.
1: Right. And everything's kind of laid out to bear, right? It's kind of all out there because we're not feeling in control.
0: You know, Kim, I could talk to you forever about this stuff, but I think we're running out of time. Let me ask you, as I always do, where can people get a hold of you if they want to reach Kim Buck, uh, whether it's pro-dependent work or they want to simply find you for therapy or education?
1: I am working in Arizona at Family Strategies Counseling Center. Um, the easiest way to reach me is probably my email, uh, first initial, last name, Buck at familystrategies.org. I'm happy to consult, answer questions, anything I can do to be helpful. To, I, I really, It's really important to me to push this perspective forward and move it forward. I personally, in my life, even with people close to me as I've discussed this concept and the shift in idea and how, how we treat people who are, work, are struggling through these things, um, I had such good response. It's new. It's different. It's um, different than what a lot of people are used to, but I think it is so important in the field right now because of what we understand about attachment and our connection to others.
0: And trauma and neurobiology and crisis and everything we know about how someone's not, they're not even capable of being particularly intellectually tuned in when they're in a crisis. And so why would you want to lead them to intellectual conclusions? I mean, everything about what, what we're doing seems to work. And folks, um, you bet that Kim and I are out there pushing pro all over the country because we believe that, you know, if you're a spouse and you have issues to look at, great. Look at them a year and a half from now. <laughs> look at them when, you know, the person isn't in crisis and your family life is normalized and you want to take a look at it grow, and grow. But I'll tell you what, there are a lot of families where if somebody gets sober and they clean up the unhappiness that has been and life just goes on and things work. So it doesn't always mean a life sentence to therapy. And I think that's part of what Kim and I are trying to give you with ProDependence is the freedom to examine yourself as you wish, when you wish, and to stay out of blame and shame. Amen. Thank you so much, Kim Buck. We will come together and do this work on the road.
1: Sounds great. Thank you, Rob.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com.